Good morning. We're going to have our uh, Bible reading. Uh, so if you'd like to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Our second reading comes from Judges chapter 6. 1 through to 16. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed the Israelites. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came there with their cattle and their tents, like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord, When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them, and he said to them, This is what the Lord God of Israel says, I brought you out of Egypt and out of a place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in the father's family. But I will be with you, said the Lord. You will strike Midian down as if you, if it were one man. Our final reading comes from Matthew 1, 18 to 23. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. Everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruits. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story. When God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake. They choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back. 
And Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here, now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Hey, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to trace the... Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I, um, I want to start by saying, uh, is this on? One, two, if not I can grab a mic. Um, thank you uh, for those uh, who, who gave to uh, the appeal last week. Uh, last week when I, I mentioned it, I think it was $1,800 that we'd raised uh, for families in need this year for Christmas um, and through the week. That went to about uh, 4,600, 4,700, massive. So I just want to say thank you all just for your charitable giving and generosity. It's going to mean heaps to the families uh, that will be receiving uh, receiving that. Uh, also want to give a little bit of an apology. I feel like I've been burning the candles at both ends <laughs> with young adults and youth. And I'm just hoping this morning's coherent for you as, uh, as we bring the message. Uh, but we've entered the, the Christmas uh, period or season and, and we're taking our time looking through uh, the prophecy in Isaiah which discusses kind of uh, and on that day what's going to happen, what we can anticipate when God steps onto the scene to, to save, to rescue and deliver his people. And the theme that uh, we were given this morning or that I was given this morning to be preaching on uh, was the theme of, of deliverance. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can't say that the word deliverance has ever really rolled off my tongue, uh, apart from when talking about Christian concepts uh, related to the Bible. I don't really hear that word. So what is kind of deliverance anyways? Deliverance really is a, it's a rescue mission or a rescue operation from an enemy or, or hostility. And it's a salvation or bringing people away from uh, the enemy, but it comes from a, an outside source that is greater 
than yourself. You're not able to do, to do it. Uh, one time when Jess and I were driving back uh, from the coast, uh, when we lived out far out west, there was flash flooding when we were, were heading out and, and we were in the middle of kind of nowhere and all the, the roads kind of got cut off, all the major highways got cut off and me thinking I knew the west really well, I was like, oh Jess, we'll just be able to head through all these back roads, don't worry, I got it covered, we'll go all these back tracks. And we're in a, a Commodore at this point and we hit these roads and it's just grey slick mud the whole way and before you know it, we're, we're bogged with cows mooing in a field and, and me with my pride having to be humbled because uh, I've got to call the SES uh, to come get us because we were hundreds of kilometres from anywhere and our car was probably going to be there for a couple of days. I needed deliverance. I needed someone with the means to help me escape the predicament. But things and matters just got worse because when the SES came, these two guys... Um, you know, real bushwhacker kind of men. Uh, they said, look, we're not going to take you back into the big smoke. The big smoke, the nearest town was less than 2,000 people. That was big smoke for them. We'll take you back to our house and you can come stay with us. And so off we drive for a couple of hours is what it felt like. And as we're driving on our way out, they decided to tell Jess and I, oh, you know, uh, where we live, you know, it's on rented allotments. People just purchase these spaces for a little while. And really, the, the type of people you get out here is people running away from the law. You know, they're trying to live that secluded life. All right, cool. And we get to, uh, we get to their place, and there's no houses out there. There's no power in there. Everyone lives in, in tin shacks. It's dirt floors. And we walk in and they pull back this one section of kind of cloth had draping from the roof and they're like, oh, you can sleep here. And they uh, shoo some, be- uh, some dogs off this bed for us and uh, say, here's your bed for the night. So we're like, cool. So I get the bed and I push it up against the far wall and I hold on to Jess and I'm looking directly at the door thinking, we're going to end up on the seven o'clock news. And and before my phone died, I got one text away in between the kind of the service that I was getting the reception, and I just texted Dad, and I said, Dad, help us. (laughs) We're lost. We don't know where we are. And my dad had the means to save us because he had a big four-wheel drive. And I think that was the first time I I felt like I was under this threat or this hostility, and, and maybe that's what deliverance feels like. I don't know if I'm going to make it tomorrow. I need help. I'm already getting teary, so it's a bad sign. (laughs) It turns out those people were actually beautiful, lovely people who took care of us. (laughs) And so the the illustration only goes so far. But my point is, is purely that deliverance means a salvation that comes from somebody greater than us that has the means. And this morning all I want to do is make three observations out of the passage of Isaiah on why Jesus needed to be born into the world and why we need deliverance. And then what I want to do is end our time practically seeking God in prayer together. Let's pray and we'll move into the text.
Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, please uh, still my heart and my mind. Lord, that it's effective. And just help me to bless your people. Amen. So we'll move to Isaiah 9, verse 3, where it says, You have enlarged the nations and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. God's word says that when the deliverer comes, he's going to do three things. He's going to make the nation larger. It's going to increase people's joy, that inner spirit of gladness. And that in it, they're going to rejoice or worship God from the gladness of spirit that they feel through this deliverance. And so we look at how Jesus fulfills those things, those prophetic words that were spoken so long ago when Jesus steps on the scene. I'm going to ask, could someone please just give me a tissue or something so I don't annoy you all. But if you turn with me to Ephesians and we look at how Jesus enlarges the nations in chapter 2 of Ephesians verses 11 to 13, this is what it says. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh and you were called the uncircumcised by those who were circumcised. Circumcision is of the flesh done by human hands. At that time you were all without Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and you are foreigners of the covenant of the promise. You are without hope and you are without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, thank you, In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What these verses are telling us is that a Gentile, a a non-Jew, which I think is most people in this room, there's no deliverance for you. There was at one point, there was no hope of salvation. You were in the world, but there was nobody. Oh, Jesus got all the tissues now. There was once no hope for you, there was no hope for me. To use my my illustration, there was no father to call. No one to say, can you please help me out because I'm stuck. That's the story without Christ born into the world. But what these verses also make clear is that because Jesus did come into the world, because Jesus did go to the cross, because he did take our sins upon himself, You who were once far off have now been brought near to God or God has drawn near to you and you can come to him. So Jesus' deliverance was for his own people, the Jews, so that they could come into it, but he enlarged the nation in that he said now all people can come in and experience this relationship with God. Now you might think, as I sometimes think, well... Surely God's kind of the onus is on him to provide a relationship for us with him. But I want you to consider how beautiful it is 
that old people can come into this relationship. Because I know that many of us are happy to look at other people and say, yeah, for sure you can come into relationship with God, like easy. But I feel so far off, right? There's something in my sins particularly that make it exempt for me to be able to go to Christ. There's something in my guilt or my sorrow. There's something that God doesn't understand about me. But the beauty in Ephesians is you are brought near. You have been given the gift of having a father that you can call and say, I need some help. And Christ enlarged the nation so that you could be in it. That's the beauty of the good news that each one of us personally receives in Christ. You can be delivered, you can be set free, and you can have salvation. And in this deliverance through salvation, Scripture says again in in Isaiah 9, as we saw before, that that is going to bring joy into the hearts of God's people and it's going to cause in them celebration or rejoicing like at harvest time or the spoils of war. Now, to just kind of put that into today's terms, your harvest time was at the point when you everything you had sown, you finally get to reap. It's the work of your hand and you're going to finally get all that money in that you've been waiting for. But on the first week, when you pulled all those fruits in, you celebrated. It's a week holiday. So you just get to enjoy the produce of what you've been doing. It's like for for us, generally what happens is you'll work all year and then the produce that you've reaped in, you'll go like, let's go on a holiday, family. And you take that time and that joyous celebration of getting to participate in everything you worked for, Isaiah says that's what the people are going to be like when they receive this deliverance that comes from Jesus. And that dividing of the spoils is, is of wartime. And it's essentially when, when you've defeated the enemy, you get all their bounty and all their loot and you get to bring it back. And to kind of put that into an imagery for you, imagine you know, being in a, in, a, in a village or a town or something where the, the watchtower dude's like ringing the bell like someone's coming and you peer out And you don't really know how to feel because all you can see is that there's war horses coming towards you. But it isn't until closer inspection that, thank the Lord, it's the colours of your village. Imagine the sigh of relief. It's not the enemy coming to crush us, it's our own people coming home. Now, the most that I've seen that much excitement in victory is my dad watching the Rabbitohs, right? And, and someone makes like a break or something and, and, and it's like involuntary almost. You'll be like, do you good thing. And, he, and he's yelling at these players that can't hear him. And, and, when he, and when they won, however long ago it was, the grand final, my, my dad was so full of joy, I'm pretty sure he broke the couch because it's this inexpressible joy that he has watching his team. He can't help but kind of jump up and down and, and do his thing. And Isaiah looks forward to the time of Christ and he says, that's what the people of God are going to be like when they receive salvation. 
And the sobering point that it brings here, I think, is does our lives express that internal joy that God brings and does it rejoice in God? And does the Sunday worship and fellowship time express worship to him that comes from him in a joy or does it simply feel like we have to do it? I went through scripture this week to, to learn more about joy. And what I found is joy is, it's a fruit of the spirit. As, as Jonathan pointed out this morning before we started the service, we don't create it. It's made manifest in us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus delivers us from sin so that we might have joy, gladness, and that in that gladness we would rejoice in what God has done for us. God delivers us for our joy so that we might rejoice in him. But there remains the tension within us because oftentimes... We know that we are delivered and that we are God's people, yet we don't often feel or experience the joy of that deliverance. And because we don't feel or experience that joy of deliverance, we do not rejoice in God as we should. What's wrong and what's happening to us? Our second point, which comes from verse 4, is that God delivers his people to to be his people. If we flick back to Isaiah, give me two seconds here. It says this. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. So Isaiah is saying that there's going to be so much joy and there's going to be so much rejoicing. Why? Because God is going to do three things for his people here. He's going to shatter the oppressive yoke, he's going to shatter a rod, and he's going to shatter this, this staff. And that imagery, this poetic prose that's going on here, it's, it's, it's a throwback to the days of Egypt for Israel. The Egyptians would put these heavy yokes on them, right, that they had to carry with their buckets and they'd put the rocks or the tar or whatever for their building projects. And the yoke became a sign of oppression. We're slaves and we are forced to carry like this. And then on top of it, if you didn't carry your heavy yoke as you should or quick enough or whatever it is, you'd get beaten with the rod or the whip to the point of death. And it was a sign, the rod was a sign of, of the cruelty of that oppression. And the staff was a reminder that these people have full authority over you. You must live under that oppression and that slavery because they are in charge of you. And it is not gracious and it is not merciful and your children and your children's children for 400 years, Israel, were bearing children into slavery. But Isaiah finishes this poetic line to say, just as you did in the days of Midian. And it kind of jumps story. And we have to ask, what was God doing in the days of Midian? He was shattering the enemy of God's people, the Israelites. If you flick into the book of Judges, and we went to Judges 6 and 9, which I read out earlier, 
You have God's people being oppressed by the Midianites, right? And it's so bad, the oppression, that they've gone hiding in caves and crevices and valleys and vats and all this kind of stuff because if they're even seen by the enemy, they'll come over and strike them down. And so they're in complete isolation and on top of it, they can't grow their crops so they're hungry and they're thirsty and all these different things. And when it gets so poverty stricken, then the people of God start crying out to God and God hears them and the very first thing that he does is he sends them a prophet to say, this is why you are being oppressed by the Midianites. This is what the prophet says as I read it earlier. This is what the Lord God says. This is the prophet. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you out of the hands of oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. God is saying to the people through the prophet, I brought you out of Egypt to be my people. And when you got into the land that I selected for you, you went and worshipped Baal and Asherah. I didn't save you to be servants to another God. You are mine. And I've sent the Midianites to remind you that you don't belong to the Amorites or to anyone else. You belong to me. So call out and trust in me. And once again, in the story of Judges, when Gideon is raised for that very purpose, God delivers his people again for the purpose of being his people, not to go and serve anything else. This happens in our Christian walk. Many of us have received salvation through Christ And we're God's people. That's who we belong to. You experience deliverance from your flesh and from your sins and from the temptations that you're falling into and all these different things. You had a change of heart, right? And yet somewhere along the line, so many of us believers, what we started to do is we started to re-yoke ourselves in our freedom back into the sins And we became subservient to Satan, just like the video shows. And so all starting again, we are putting on a yoke that we are not supposed to be under, that we were freed from. How many have lost our joy in the ministry of Jesus' deliverance and we struggle for that joy because we're not actually walking in the freedom that he originally purchased for us and so heavy is that that burden of sin because what comes with sin guilt I can't go to God shame I'm embarrassed to go to God or to tell someone what's going on in my life fear I'll be rejected by God The community of God's people will reject me. There's nothing joyful about any of those things, is there? And then on top of it, because we're carrying this yoke and we think we have to carry it, Satan comes along with a rod of religion. Pick it up and carry it. And if you don't, I'll smack you with some more principles. 
carry it better. Work harder, strive harder. And he wields this authority over us because we believe somewhere along the line, unfortunately, that we've got no liberator for the sins that we're in again. But you were originally liberated, were you not? Delivered. So why does Christ not have the power to deliver again? Bringing about your own deliverance, it's frustrating. It's joyless. Why? Because it never works. It can't work. Someone greater than Satan has to do that work for you. And the name of Christ is who we call upon. We'll move into my next point, which is point three. God's deliverance comes to us through his victory. His deliverance comes to us through the victory of what Christ did for us. Read verse 5 with me, Isaiah 9, 5. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. So Jesus again says, on that day, when everything takes place, God's going to shatter his enemy completely and they will be without a trace. There won't be a memory of them. The the boots and and the garments that Isaiah is talking about here, they're actually not Hebrew words, they're foreign words. And he's employed them and used them because he's saying the enemy that oppressed you for so long will be remembered no more. Peace will reign for God's people. Everything that they had, everything that they did will be thrown into the fire and God's people will live in that freedom. And as the video showed and as the the prophecy of Genesis unfolds, and it's God prophesying at that part in Genesis 3 when he's talking to the snake, he prophesies to Satan. I'm going to make sure that there's enmity between you and the offspring of this woman. And one of her children's going to come along and stamp on your head. You will strike the heel, but he will crush your head. And that great enemy that God is facing, that we are opposing or up against, is the devil. Jesus says one day someone's going to come along in the human race and he's going to wield all power and he's going to have all authority to break the yoke of Satan and the work that he is doing in the world. And crushing the head is crushing the authority. You see, the virgin will become pregnant. And she's going to give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Why? Because that is God with us. She'll give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. Why? Because what he will do is he will save people from their sins. Jesus Christ, born of the virgin woman, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. The offspring of Eve, but the power of God. And through this victory work that he accomplished on the cross, he disarms the authority that Satan wields over us through sin so that we can have deliverance to reign in the victory that he has for us. 
You see, when we get back to Judges, if we go back to 6 and 7, and Jesus, well, the, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, I'm, I'm raising you up to bring deliverance. He looks at Gideon and he says, you're my mighty warrior. Gideon doesn't feel mighty. Gideon replies and says, how am I mighty? My, my clan, my tribe is the weakest in Israel. And me personally, I'm the weakest in my own family. How am I mighty? And the Lord replied to him and said, I'll be with you. Gideon's strength is in the God who will go with him. Gideon alone, you and I alone, we are weak. But in the victory God has won for us through Christ crucified for sins, we are strong. Because we are strong in the Lord. If you need deliverance, you are too weak to do it in your principles. To do it in your self-controls. What you need is power from on high to break the bondage. I watched a, a, a YouTube clip this week, and it was just like one of those shorts. I was in the habit of scrolling, which I need to get out of. And, and uh, Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you know that guy, but he's a philosopher kind of this age, I guess, that people like listening to. He came across one of the YouTube shorts, and he's giving a talk, and there's thousands of people listening to him, and the reason that people love listening to him is because he is the wisdom on how to live life well. Right? That's why people want to listen to him. And he's giving this spiel on how to live life well. And all of a sudden, this young man runs up on stage and he says, my name's John Smith. I'm unwell. Jordan Peterson, if I can just get to you, I'm unwell. And so this young man, whoever he was, he was obviously in a bit of a bind. He'd been reading Peterson or listening to him and he thought this man obviously has the key to how to have a happy or a good or successful or whatever it is life that he was looking for. But for some reason it wasn't curing whatever depression or anxiety or whatever it was that he was going through. It wasn't doing the trick but he thought if I get to the man himself then everything will be okay. And as the security guard tackles him to the ground Jordan Peterson looks at the boy and says, I hope you get the help that you need. He's meant to be the help. See, with Christianity, you can go away with a, with a sermon that I preach and go, here's a good thought. Here's a good principle I can employ into my Christian religion. Or you can go to Christ. We have a living God, one able to get you past what you're going through, one able to break back through the things that you're falling back into. We're not going to a principle, we're going to a person, someone strong and someone mighty to save. I'm going to ask uh, the band to come back up and I'll finish with a story. Before, uh, before Jesus raised Lazarus in, in John chapter 11, 
He told his Martha, his, Lazarus's sister, he said, look, Martha, your, your brother, he's going to rise again. And Martha responded and said, I, I know that he will rise again on that day, or he will rise again on that last day. And Jesus replies and says, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. He, he was correcting her understanding of what that day is. It's not the day that is special or powerful, but it is the God who breaks in and acts. That day for Lazarus, his resurrection was the same day he talked to Martha. That's what Jesus was saying. I have victory and power now if I so choose to do it. And I can bring your brother back now. It doesn't have to be future. And again, I say, how many Christians are living with just, I'm going to resurrect at the end, but how much more victory is there for you now if you would just believe? Brothers and sisters, what ails you? Come and be delivered. What sins have you fallen back into? Come and be delivered. What addictions bind you? Come and find deliverance. What acts of the flesh still enslave you? Find deliverance. Does unforgiveness, does bitterness and envy and jealousness control your life? Find deliverance. Where Satan has taken territory away from you, you need a deliverer who is stronger than he. As Romans says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? For we are more than conquerors in Christ. <clears throat> so as a band plays, I've asked Pastor Jonathan to come up at the front here, and I'm going to stand over here. And I want to pray with you and for you. Bring things into the light. Not so everyone knows. Just confess them to God. If there's things in your spiritual walk where it's like, I've been, it's 10 years. And I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Bring it forward. Is your God strong enough not only to raise you on that day, but to free you from the things that you're in now.